0: Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 43 of Greens with Envy, the podcast where we talk about who we've seen, courses we visited, and stories we've heard. I'm Matt Lowell, managing editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, joined as just about always on Greens with Envy by my friend and colleague, editor-in-chief Guy Cipriano. We're going to talk about two courses that opened probably a hundred years apart. Nobody's really 100% 100% sure? That should be fun. Before we get to that, though, Guy, how you
1: doing? I'm doing wonderful, Matt, because you know where we're getting ready to head? Uh, well, yes, we're, 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 we have Carolina on our mind. We are headed to Myrtle Beach this weekend for the Carolina's GCSA Conference and Trade Show. One of our favorite reoccurring annual events, Matt.
0: It is a fantastic event. We will get to that in really just a minute because we've got a couple of housekeeping no, things.
1: Too. Let's go to that first. I'm so excited oh, to talk about okay. it. I'm so All excited right. to talk about so what we have planned. we're going
0: to move that from four to one. All right. Well, let's talk about Myrtle Beach. Uh, there was obviously no show in 2020. We went back last year. It was like a family reunion. And I expect this year to be even bigger just based on the size of the exhibitor list. There are more than 1,000 people registered as exhibitors. Should be a really, really fun show. Should be great to see a lot of people. The weather for November looks great. It feel like it's always chilly. You're right there on the ocean. It looks like really nice, warm weather, perfect for some rounds of golf and some runs and some walks to the convention center. This should be a fantastic week.
1: Yeah, and you can find us at booth number 2016. 2016. Which is about the year... A new member of our contingent that we're bringing to Myrtle Beach was born.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Everybody, look for Mr. Jimmy Clark. He's our new account representative. This (laughs) will be his first Carolinas GCSAA conference and trade show. He's 25. He's not six. We know he's excited. He will have Mr. on his badge because of (laughs) the old man who could not input stuff right into the registration system. Wonder who that could be. And we're also bringing... Our national sales manager, Russ Warner, with us. He's a Carolinas GCSAA conference and trade show veteran. Matt's going. Of course, I'm going. We will be all over the place. Our booth will be a place where you can come and interact with us. You can give us story ideas. You can stop by and say hello. We'll have our September and October issues available for you to pick up. We'll have some giveaways. We'll have some swag. We'll be doing some... Videos probably, Matt, from the booth. Videos, podcast recordings.
0: Podcasts like everybody else. I understand that Pulling Weeds, not Pulling Weeds, Pulling Weeds is going to do some live stuff on the floor. I know that Scott Hollister from the GCSAA is going to be there. Who knows? Maybe he'll do some live stuff from the floor. Podcasts are taking over the floor at the Carolina Show. Yeah, and speaking of podcasts, we have some other series, Matt. We do. This is one of really just six regular series, plus a whole bunch of other stuff we have going on. Greens with Envy. Drops once a month on Tuesdays. We also have Beyond the Page that takes you into stories and columns in the magazine. The most recent episode included a great conversation with golf course architect Bo Welling about the rise of short courses in recent years, his history with short courses, and four different short courses that he has either opened or is about to open his designs. Uh, One in 2019, one this year, and then maybe two next year. That was a great conversation. We have Off the Course, where I talk with golf course superintendents, other turf pros, about literally anything that is not their job. Guy has Tartan Talks, where he talks with members of the ASGCA. That podcast now going into its seventh year or sixth year. It's a lot of episodes. I I think it's in its seventh year now.
1: I recorded episode number 77. Yeah, 7th year. There you go. seven
0: Almost seven and a half years. Plus, we have Real Turf Text with Trent Manning, where Trent talks with all sorts of great folks on the equipment side. That's a weekly podcast. We have one episode a month on our feed. And Wonderful Women of Golf with Rick Wolfel, the most recent episode with Georgia Klingerman, a fantastic young assistant superintendent. She has a lot of great perspective there. And then a whole bunch of other stuff, like talking turf weeds and disease discussion. If you
1: need to get some podcasts in your feed, <laughs> we have no shortage of them. And the people we need to sell on podcasts aren't the people that we're talking to right now. No, because they're already listening. You have anybody at your course or nobody else in the industry that just likes to learn new things and wants to um, think about the industry or have the industry in their ear at various times, whether they're driving or working on the course or working out or taking a walk, we're there for you in every form. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of great podcasts in the industry. We're biased. We think ours are pretty great. A couple other housekeeping notes before we get into two different courses, one that opened in 1893, the other that opened in 1993, Turf Heads Takeover. In Turf Heads Grilling, there is still a little bit of time left to turn in stories or recipes. The 7th Annual Turf Heads Takeover, our December issue. All reader-contributed stories. We already have some fantastic stories. I think there's one story in there that's the best story we've published all year, period, and that includes everything you and I have written. Uh, just a fantastic, heart-wrenching story. Uh, lovely tribute. And Turfheads Grilling, 2nd Annual Recipe Guide in the December issue. We started that last year. A fantastic partnership with our friends at Aqua Aid Solutions. Love everything that they've done, and I think they love everything that we've done. Plus, our January issue, what used to be known as State of the Industry, we redubbed it last year, Numbers to Know. That survey is going to go out into the field here shortly. If you receive it, just take a few minutes. Fill out the information. The benchmarking is very important in terms of budgeting and, and expenses and uh, capital projects and all that sort of stuff, but we have some... Very important uh, one-off questions for this year as well, which will go in with the overall package. And I think will lead to a really, really good, informative, helpful package for a lot of people. And the more responses we get, obviously the more accurate that information is. So if you get it, take five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, however long you can carve out of your day, fill that out, and really help
1: everybody else in the industry. Okay, enough about us. Let's get to the golf courses, Matt. Yeah. And Matt, for our listeners that aren't familiar with what Matt does as his side hustle, he hosts trivia games here in Northeast Ohio. I write and host trivia, yes. He is like the Alex Trebek of Northeast Ohio. Nobody is Alex Trebek. Anyway, Matt, we're going to start the the meat of this podcast. Funny, we just started talking about grilling, and now we're talking about meat. Anyway, wonder what's on my mind right now. Okay. I'm going to ask you a trivia question. All right, shoot. Can you name the five founding USGA clubs? Well, I know one because we're talking
0: about it. One is Newport Country Club. I don't know what the other four are. I I couldn't even venture a guess.
1: I've heard of them, I'm sure. I just don't know what they are. The Country Club in Brookline, Massachusetts. Okay,
0: just had a major tournament there.
1: Shinnecock Hills Okay, on Long Island. Chicago Golf Club in Wheaton, Illinois. They're in the news as well. And, of course, the granddaddy. St. Andrews in Yonkers, New York. That makes sense. Those are the five founding USGA clubs. I actually present it at the West Virginia GCSA turf conference earlier this month and asked that question. uh, Basic golf knowledge, and we did get a right response in the room. But those are some things that are good to know because, as I said in my presentation, you may not work in the same industry as your members And customers, you may not live in the same neighborhood. You may have different interests in life. But golf is the commonality that brings you to the course, brings everybody to the golf course. And it's important to speak the language of golf. So I recommend trying to get that base of basic golf knowledge because that's the one thing that anybody who works in a golf course has in common with anybody who plays a golf course is golf.
0: Good stuff to know. I have written a handful of categories in recent years about various golf courses, golf terminology, golf and pop culture, but I've never asked that question, so good to know. We are going to dive into Newport Country Club, no pun intended because you wrote the bullet mark, Timeless Golf by the Sea. So we're not diving into the sea, we're just diving into, talking about Newport Country Club. You were there not
1: too long ago. I had the once in three lifetimes opportunity to spend some time at Newport Country Club. What a special place. You feel it the moment you get in there that this place has been there for a long time. In fact, it has been there for a long time. Its history dates back to 1893. 129, almost 130 years. You know what era in the United States we were in in 1893?
0: Well, England was still the Victorian era. We were in the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age. Rockefeller. Rockefeller was starting to give away
1: his money. So was Carnegie. Yeah, and actually Newport Country Club has some Links to the Rockefeller family, so go figure. Uh, One of those clubs, right? Been around for a long, long, long time, and it feels like that when you're walking around the golf course. It is such a magical setting, unique setting, uh, a setting that feels like it hasn't been changed much in the last 129 years. Uh, We talked about on the last podcast about Highland Country Club in Mm -hmm. LaGrange, Georgia, didn't have – doesn't have fairway irrigation. They don't have fairway irrigation at Newport country club. So you have these blends of turf grasses that have been there for over a hundred years. And they're, you know, some of the holes are right by the sea, other holes. You don't really feel that close to the sea. Uh, The Atlantic ocean is the sea that I'm talking about. Of course. So think about that. You know, you you play the first hole, then you cross the street and the, the second through eighth holes are that far from the ocean in fact the third green and the fourth hole which is a par three are parallel to the Atlantic Ocean and the day I was there it was really windy so you saw some just spectacular sea splashes uh, there were people lined up on an observation point across the uh, road from the course right along the ocean just observing the sea splashes so to me that that was pretty cool you know misty rainy day just felt really cool walking around there uh, the golf course superintendent is Chris Cohen. He's been there for a while now. His team does a fabulous job of just preserving what makes Newport Country Club special. It's not the, the type of course or setting where you would want just striped, bent grass, greens, tees, and fairways. That's not the aesthetic or the, the playability that they're going for. And the, the grass has had all these different colors, and the the bunkers were super— interesting and they had the brownish sand not the the pearl white sand yeah there's so much to talk about with newport country club uh you know willie davis was the first architect there he was a scottish golf pro so he did the original nine hole layout in the 1890s Hmm. and then aw tilling the club bought some more land and aw tillinghass came in the 1920s and did his thing so it's a willie davis and an aw tillinghass design but it blends together perfectly you know I know a little bit about golf course architecture. I was at the American Society of Golf Course Architects meeting, so I was around golf course architects when we had a chance to go and experience Newport Country Club. Uh, You know, It's really tough to tell what parts of the course that Tillinghast did and what parts of the course Davis did. From what I understand, what I've been told and what I observed is that the bunkering was a little more severe on the Tillinghast parts of the, the golf course, and Ron Force, who is one of the great um, restorers of golf course architects now for the last 30 plus years he he did he's done some work at Newport o- Country Club over the years he was there that day too uh, educating us on some of the things that the club has done over the years to, to preserve that old school look and feel uh, just an amazing clubhouse we don't talk about clubhouses too much on the podcast we focus on golf courses but right. the clubhouse is a defining feature there well, and you have you have this beautiful club history, the
0: history of the Newport Country Club, and that's the clubhouse on the cover, I'm, I'm assuming.
1: Yep. It's gorgeous. Yep, it's the clubhouse. It was restored uh, in the 2000s. Uh, the club, it, you, you'd think the club has just been ultra successful throughout the course of its history, and it pretty much is. I mean, it hosted the first U.S. Opens and U.S. Amateurs in 1895, and Tiger Woods came by and won the U.S. Amateur there over Buddy Marucci in 1995 and then Annika Sorenstam won the U.S. Women's Open there in 2006 and they're getting ready to host a U.S. Senior Open. They were supposed to host the U.S. Senior Open in 2020. Now that's going to be next year Uh, but like any club it hasn't been roses all the time. There were some rough patches in its history and the clubhouse fell into I don't want to say disrepair but not a pristine state and they were able to restore that in the 2000s and I think the thing that So many things impressed me about Newport Country Club, but the continuity of the club. We had a chance to meet uh, Barkley Douglas Jr., the club president, gave a little presentation to our group in the clubhouse after we played uh, golf, and he's been the club president since 1987. To put this into perspective, you are in your early 40s. I'm almost
0: 40. Barkley Douglas Jr. has been the club president since you were in elementary school. I was not in kindergarten yet. Just astounding.
1: And one of the nicest people you'd want to meet, too. He was so happy to have uh, golf course architects at the course. And, you know, there's a lot of pride in that club. I mean, you go in the clubhouse and nothing is out of out of place. Nothing yeah. is really out of place on the, uh, on the golf course. Uh, the golf course was very uh, playable. It had some uphill holes. It had some downhill holes. It had some holes that played left to right, some that played right to left. Like I mentioned, some... Along the sea, some that you didn't really feel that close to the sea. There were some rock outcroppings. Uh, you know, the bunkering is really cool. Like I said, it's not it's not overdone in any ways, Matt. It, and that's what works at Newport Country Club. And at some places, the striped bent grass greens, tees, and fairways, and the pearl white bunkers work. That's what fits the setting or what fits what the club is about. You know, at Newport Country Club, it's about keeping that feel and. That, that sense of place, and we'll get into sense of place later in the podcast to tie everything together. Uh, also, it's got two consecutive par threes on the back nine. You don't see that too no, often. The that's thir- cool. The 13th and the 14th hole. The 13th hole plays uphill towards the clubhouse. The 14th hole plays parallel to the clubhouse. The 13th hole, right along the tee, when I say right along the tee, like there's about – three yards of buffer is the maintenance facility and some employee housing. And it got me thinking golf courses I've visited where the maintenance facility is super close to a golf hole. One only really came to mind and I know there are others out there. I just haven't seen them, but the Hamilton farm Mm. in New Jersey, the seventh hole is the old horse barn. And that's right along, uh, the maintenance facility is there right along that par three that plays downhill. I'm sure the maintenance facility at Newport country club is so like, it's parallel to the tee. So I'm not sure it takes that many shots off of it, but I imagine Chris Cohen and his team have to be very careful about taking equipment in and out and uh, dropping things off and making noise because it's really that, that close to, to the golf course. So. Well, I mean, three yards is
0: less than 10 feet. It's really close. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yep. And, and you know, Matt you you mentioned the book i have sitting here in our recording studio the history of the Newport Country Club by Frederick Waterman Frederick Waterman also did a uh, club history for the country club in Brookline mm. the book is amazing one of the best pro shop purchases of my career you know, we, i think we moved past the point of buying golf shirts and now we look for books in my world you know there you can only have so many logo right.
0: golf shirts well, so i mean it's, you can only have so many hangers in your closet so yeah, yeah. but it, we can always add another bookcase.
1: And I read the book instantly after I returned from Rhode Island. And as you know, Matt, and as our listeners know and our readers know, that we pay a lot of attention to short courses and we study them. And it's you know, it's one of my passions within the passion of the passion that is this job in this game. Right. And I, we try to see as many as we can. And I've seen probably over a dozen ones this year that I had not seen before. I study as much as I can about short courses and in in Waterman's book in the 1890s, uh, Willie Davis laid out a six hole short course at Newport country club for women and children. Uh, to, to my knowledge, I can't find records of a short course that was built before this in the United States. Of course, it doesn't exist anymore when the club purchased more land and Tillinghast came in, they had to shift things around to get 18 holes of golf in. But, you know, to my knowledge, uh, it could have been the first short course built in the United States. Uh, of course, last year Matt and we talked about this on the podcast, and we had it in our January uh, short course stories feature. We went—I went to the Bringhurst Golf Course in Alexandria, Louisiana, which opened in the 1920s and is the oldest short course in the United States right now. Right. But you could say, you know, we say it's a recent thing, right? Like it's the short court course movement right now or the short course craze. But really. They're reverting back to a concept that's been around since the 1890s, and that's how most things work in golf and golf architecture.
0: Well, and it's interesting, too, because Newport is really ahead of the curve here in a lot of ways, where short courses now are in vogue, they're very fashionable. I mentioned earlier in the podcast the recent episode of Beyond the Page with Bo Welling. Bo, you know, he doesn't want to get pigeonholed into being the short course specialist, but an incredible course that opened in 2019, another one that opened uh, earlier this year, and then two next year, including the one that he designed with Gil Hance at uh, the new PGA headquarters. It's it's Short courses are in so many locations now, more so than they were even, I'd say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I mean, the, the number has probably skyrocketed. I wish we knew exactly how many there were. I don't have that number in front of me, but... For Willie Davis to be so far ahead of the curve that he laid out, and not even a nine, a six-hole, which is also fashionable, because now you've got six-holes, you've got nines, you've got tens, you've got twelves. You know, It's not a nine or an 18 thing here. So Willie Davis has a six-hole short course 130 years ago. I wish that course still existed, but like you said, when uh, they acquired the extra land, the, the additional plot, and yes came in and... Reworked some stuff and built it up to 18 holes. I
1: think like most things in golf course improvements and golf course design and architecture and construction, really the members deserve more credit than anybody because they had the vision in the 1890s to add that amenity for women and children. And you see that happening now. And uh, most of the quote unquote trendy ideas or new ideas in golf are things that have been recycled from the past. Sure. There, well, and, that's, and it's like that in our content world, too, a lot of times. Well, but Matt. it's like that anywhere. The, the old
0: saying that there's no such thing as an original idea. There's not. Everything gets. Everything is recycled. It's just a matter of presenting it in a new and interesting manner.
1: And the whole uh, twisted thing about this is that a lot of the clubs in Rhode Island are older clubs. Uh, none are as old as Newport Country Clubs, so they, they're landlocked, and now they don't have the land to add that. Six hole, mm-hmm. short course, or that seven hole short course, or even a four hole short course, because there just isn't land there. So, some of these places where these concepts started don't have the capabilities now to bring that concept back. Right, and
0: uh, worth noting while we're still talking about Newport and, and the Northeast, didn't obviously get to any of these courses. But my summer nines road trip, where I visited nine hole golf courses in a dozen states, and I'm forgetting the exact numbers now, over 4,000 miles and all this stuff. It was tremendous fun. A lot of great stories included in the September issue. But when I was building my list of where to go, we don't pay a lot of attention to rankings. But I found a few best nine-hole course rankings. It must have been 60 to 65% of them were in the Northeast, and that's just because at that era, in the... 1890s 1900s 1910s 1920s there were a lot more people there was a lot less land and nine-holers were a little easier to build than 18-holers so it's it's interesting that there are so many nine-holers and so many revered older nine-holers in that corner of the country and yet here's Newport Country Club which took it one step further and had had a six
1: and my only regret from the visit is because I was part of a group and we took buses there uh, and it was a damp and dreary day. I did not have an opportunity to meet Superintendent Chris Cohen. But if Chris, if you're listening or anybody on your team's listening or anybody that knows Chris is listening, what a fabulous job they do, um, hitting the target that their membership puts out there for them. Yeah. Need to take some time and, and go through that book.
0: And worth noting, if anybody is coming through Northeast Ohio and you want to come say hello, you can come say hello and then you can come hang out in our offices all day and just go through uh guy's golf library. It is substantial, I would say.
1: And then we'll go take you to play a short course because our office is pretty much right between two Cleveland Metro parks operate short courses, Washington and the one at Shawnee Hills.
0: Moving forward 100 years in time from 1893 to 1993, a year that you and I both remember. Uh, I turned 10 Pete Dye Golf Club. Uh, this is a course that you have visited before. It is in one of your favorite states. But just like everywhere else, change is the only thing that is constant. They, uh, they've they had some change since the last time you visited.
1: So for, for our very loyal listeners, they may remember that we talked about this golf course on the podcast two years ago. And one of those very loyal listeners is... Cody Fry, the assistant superintendent at Pete Dye golf club. He's still the assistant superintendent at Pete Dye golf club. And he told me when I went around the course earlier this month, that he's still listening to the podcast. So Cody, thank you. Hello. Part two on the podcast. Cause we gave Cody a shout out in 2020 and we're going to give him a shout out again, Cody. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends about us. If you haven't already, it sounds like you have told a lot of people about us. So uh, we're so glad that you listen. We're glad that we were able to spend some time with you again. And yeah, there have been some changes at Pete Dye Golf Club. Uh, Pretty cool changes, too. So the superintendent that I spent time with two years ago was Tony Kowalski. He was in his second year at Pete Dye Golf Club. He replaced the legendary Gary Grandstaff, who was up until that point the only superintendent in the club's history. He got there well before the course even opened and worked with Pete Dye on building the only golf course in the world that has Pete Dye's name on it. So that tells you right there, it's pretty special. If Pete agreed to put right. his name on the golf course. So Tony was promoted to general manager last year and he's young. I mean, he's right. still in his thirties. So we talk about superintendents having all the qualities and then some to become general managers. And I don't even think it's a question whether they're qualified. I would say any competent superintendent is qualified to make that leap. It's whether they want to, because that's a tough decision to make. You're dealing with uh, club politics a lot more. You're not spending as much time outside and doing the things that got you into the industry. But Tony uh, stepped up and took that role for Pete Dye Golf Club. So there are not many, to my knowledge, uh, superintendents who have become general managers who are still in their 30s. So what a tremendous future uh, Tony has at Pete Dye Golf Club. And I got a chance to see him. And when I saw him uh, during my visit, earlier this month, he was in Pete's place, which is the little bar they have near the uh, practice green and first tee and patio area where members hang out. And he was uh, helping winterize Pete's place with two other employees. So that's something that you probably don't have to do if you're a golf course superintendent, but he's a very hands-on general manager. Like he was a hands-on superintendent. So he got, when he got promoted, he got to hire a superintendent and he hired our friend, Jason Holland. Jason was at Stonewall Resort. Uh, for more than a decade, Stonewall Wall Resort is a really cool uh, Arnold Palmer design golf course. It's part of a state park, about uh, 35 miles from Pete Dye Golf Club, just south of there. And Jason spent some time in Florida. And then wanted to come back to his native West Virginia and got you know what is one of the premier turf jobs in West Virginia, being the right. protector Perf- of perfect Pete time. Dye's work yeah. and being the superintendent of Pete Dye Golf Club. And it's really special for Jason because Jason has a a passion for golf course architecture, and before he got married and had a daughter, he spent time working on the architecture and construction side of the industry. In fact, he spent some time working for architect Keith Foster yeah. earlier in his career. So, you know, to have somebody that has a passion for golf course architecture and knows West Virginia and knows the growing environment—I mean, as if you're Tony a young general manager, how awesome is that to have that type of golf course superintendent in place and that you know your mind's going in a lot of different directions as general manager, and that's one less thing that Tony has to worry about as he grows into the general manager role. So it's a really cool work situation between the two. I'm sure it's something that we'll probably profile in the magazine eventually. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give them a little more time to settle into their respective roles before asking them the tough questions, the hard-hitting questions. But you talk about the ideal... Uh, superintendent, general manager dynamic. It really is there at Pete Dye Golf Club right now.
0: And I was going to ask you earlier, a few minutes ago, how often you've seen a superintendent still in their 30s, and especially their early to mid 30s, step up and, and move into a GM role. Let's avoid that, but let's talk about just for a minute or two how important it is for any superintendent who takes on increased responsibility whether it's uh, director of agronomy or, in in this case, a GM role, but anything beyond what they were doing. And they're in a position to hire their successor. How important is it, do you think, to have somebody who actually knows what they're doing? Maybe they're not 100% familiar with the course out of the gate. They will be very quickly. But who's experienced, who knows every aspect of, you know, maintaining the agronomy and and maintaining the turf. It has to be, if not your number one priority,
1: one, a, it's the most important thing. There you go. Number one, a person stepping into that situation can do is hire the right superintendent, hire a superintendent that he or she feels comfortable working with and hiring a superintendent that knows their stuff. Because I'm sure when you get elevated to the general manager role, your mind is racing. You're stepping into, uh, areas of the club management that you're just not as familiar with uh you know food and beverage and and, and the pro shop and revenue and all, all sorts of things that you're probably familiar with but didn't have to deal with directly i mean think about hiring how many more people you have to hire for uh, some of the inside jobs you know we talk about hiring challenges out on the golf course there are huge hiring challenges uh in the clubhouse uh you know food and beverage you know boy there are You know, in every community, there are dozens, if not hundreds of places that are competing for servers and cooks and waitstaffs and chefs and those type of things. So uh, if you hire the right superintendent right away, that is basically one thing that you don't have to worry about in that general Mm -hmm. manager role. You just let that superintendent go, do his or her thing, and the golf course is the number one asset, right? So if you get the golf course where it should be immediately as a new GM, that's going to help you. Elevate the parts of the club that probably need more help than the golf course, and yeah, I mean, th- there are a few situations I've seen that are, you know, really this good as a superintendent general manager dynamic is the one that I observed at Pete Dye Golf Club when I was there earlier this month, and yeah, you're not going to succeed as a superintendent stepping into a general manager role, if you don't hire the right superintendent, in fact, then you're probably going to spend time doing the thing that you should least do, which is time on the (laughs) golf course, worrying about the maintenance of it. And and then the other areas of the club are going to start. So the golf course superintendent is the most important hire in my mind at any golf facility, at any country club, public, private, semi-private resort, whatever, because if you don't get the golf course, right, None of the other stuff matters. Oh, and the Pete Dye Golf Club is one of the best golf courses in the the United States. You know, we're fortunate. We don't have to rank golf courses. I could not imagine doing that. You know, I don't want to, I get asked a lot, like, like, Hey guy, what's the best golf course you've ever visited? My answer was the next one, but those that have been at the Pete Dye Golf Club, I've never had a chance to play it. I've toured it twice now. Uh, Hopefully I have a chance to go back next year to tour it again and write about Jason and Tony and their dynamic is one of the most fascinating golf courses in the United States. And seeing it a second time, Matt, made me want to see it a a third time even more. And you know you're at a great place, a place that really isn't replicated anywhere else. When you spend four and a half hours there going around the superintendent, looking at everything you can in that time, talking about everything, uh, pull out, get, get to the car, start driving on the interstate. And the thing you think about is, seeing that golf course again, because you notice so many, I noticed so many things going around at the second time that I didn't notice the first time. And I'm sure if I go around it a third time, there'll be dozens of things that I didn't notice the first or second time, because it's that darn good of a golf course and that interesting of a place.
0: Right. And we both see a lot, but we very seldom see courses more than once. It's just the nature, nature of the job. We go in, we spend a day with people, we tour the facility we we tour the course, maybe we play the course, and, and then we're gone, and we so seldom see a course again. So it's a rare treat to be able to see a course and a great course more than once. And, and like you said, hopefully you get out there a third time next year.
1: What do you look for, and what do you notice when you return to a course? I'll give you a great example. So early last year, twenty twenty one, I had a chance to visit. A course, called Frosty Valley Resort in Danville, Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, and went around with the superintendent, Tom Height. And that's a William Gordon design. And Tom was telling me that I believe multiple par fives there are on the periphery of the property. And I never thought of where the par fives are located on the property until Tom brought this up to me And the reason a golf architect would put a par 5 on the periphery of the properties because that's not necessarily the best land, Mm -hmm. and you can use the most interesting land on the interior of the property for your (laughs) par 3s and 4s. So like I said earlier, my first visit at Pete Dye Golf Club was in late 2020, so I didn't have this knowledge about par 5s on the periphery of properties in my head. Back then, and then now every visit I go on, I notice that, and almost every course you go to has at least two par fives on yeah. the periphery of the property. The Pete Dye Golf Club has three of them. So the fifth hole is just an awesome par five, and it has a creek on the right, and then smokestacks off in the distance. So periphery of the property, on the right is a creek, That's pretty darn cool, right? So that creek hugs the entire right side of the fifth hole, and the fairway sort of has two tiers, just an awesome left or right par five. Then you get to the seventh hole, or the eighth hole, sorry. The seventh hole is just a fabulous par three downhill at Pete Dye Golf Club. You drive through the mine and then go up the the, cart path. That's the mine And you got this cool view of uh, multiple holes on the front nine. So the eighth hole. Par five, along the periphery of the property, you get to the approach close to the green on the right. What do you see on the right? You see areas where the mines were stripped out back in the day. In fact, Jason Holland and I walked to the uh, right of the hole, and he's you know showing me lumps of coal that are still falling off the mountain. So that's another example of Pete Dye's genius. You know, putting a par five on the periphery of the property uh, using. Some of the old mine remnants as a feature, and creating an awesome, memorable par five. You know, there's actually a waste bunker between the fairway and then the old hillside where you know they've stripped out for mining. And then the 11th hole, another par five on the periphery of the property, very uh, strategic hole, different ways you can play it. So, you know, typically. At a lot of courses, maybe courses that have weaker architecture, the par fives are the least interesting holes. But the par fives at Pete Dye Golf Club are super fascinating, and three of the four are on the periphery of the property. The only one that isn't is the 15th hole, which plays over a pond that was dug in during course construction. And In fact, they're adding a new back tee to it now. So three of the four par fives there are on the periphery of the property. I didn't notice that. I didn't notice how cool some of those features were on the periphery of the property, like the old uh, mine area and the creek, until – getting that knowledge from Tom Height when I visited Frosty Valley Resort in 2021. So, you know, if you work on a golf course and you're, you're listening to this podcast or you visit a golf course and you're listening to a podcast, think of the golf courses that you go to a lot and where the par fives are located in relation to the property boundaries. I'm not saying every course has multiple par fives on the periphery, but more courses than you would think do have that. And the Pete Dye Golf Club is an example of one where I didn't really notice that until the second time. I also noticed the angles a lot more. I noticed that there are different ways to come into each hole. I noticed that some of the greens have contours that are meant to be played from one side of the fairway depending on where the hole location is. I did not notice that the first time. The first time you're just in awe of being at a Pete Dye designed golf course. It's built on a former coal mine and there was a waterfall piped underneath the 10th green. There's a creek that's a feature on a lot of the holes. They're they're It's the old mine shaft that you drive through, the the rail cars along the 10th hole. You notice, I guess, the eye candy the first time. And then when you go the second time, you really start to notice the strategic intent intent, and uh, the strategy at Pete Dye Golf Club is just fabulous. I mean, Pete Dye, it took over a decade for him to build that because him and the original owner of the course went back and forth on everything and anything. And it was one of the great golf construction and design stories of all time. You know, If there's ever an opportunity to tell that story in book form wow somebody should jump on it including maybe the host of this podcast you know if that's something the club ever wants to do not that i'm lobbying for that or anything here on air but
0: not that he's lobbying for it on air. But, but
1: pete Dye probably spent as much time there as uh nearly any golf course he ever designed and the stories are just legendary and you know some of the people that were around during Dye's time working on the course are starting to get up up in years, but they have stories. And, you know, Gary Grandstaff is still around and he spends time with Jason Holland and Tony Kowalski still. And, you know, the stories that he has and the stories that are going to be passed down, there are unlike few in the industry. So it was an honor to go back again and study the architecture. And, you know, it's not an easy growing environment, right? It's, you know, you can make the argument now that, that Northern West Virginia is in the transition zone. So, you know, Jason and his team fight a lot of different challenges. And, you know, not only are you trying to, to keep turf alive and keeping, you know, keep turf at the high level that's demanded at a upper tier uh, private club with a national membership, but you're also trying to preserve the architecture too. And I also think the, uh, so there, there are over a hundred bunkers on the course, but the simplicity of Pete Dye's bunker designs with the, the flat bottoms and the you know, none of them are really overdone or too flashy, but they're really cool with how the grass faces are used, and most of them are in very strategic locations. So I think that the uh, the fact that bunkers don't need flash sand or super steep faces to to, to be a key part of the golf course that, that stuck out in my second uh, visit to the to the course. Uh, one thing I didn't notice the first time that there's like a the fourth hole is a par three that plays with water on the left, and it's a pond between the uh, the fourth hole and the fifth hole, the par three that I mentioned. Well, in the middle of that pond, there's like a Rocky Island and there's a mailbox in it. <laughs> you know what that mailbox is? Uh letters to Santa. I have no idea. Close to it. It's the comment box, but ah. nobody can get to the comment box. So that's a little uh, part of Pete Dye golf club lore that probably funny. stems from Pete Dye. That's uh, very funny. But it, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, Jason's building his team. You know, he was able to, Cody Fry, you know, has been there for a while now. It's as assistant superintendent, and Jason's going to continue building that team. And it's just a, it's a club that everybody loves. I mean, nobody says a bad thing or a negative thing about the golf course or the club, but it's really on an even more upward tra- trajectory, if that's even possible. That's awesome.
0: So tying these two courses together uh, again, eighteen ninety three. 1993, very different approaches to architecture, very different approaches to golf's place in the country at the time, very different approaches to how golf is played uh, in 1893 and 1993. You write great golf is
1: great regardless of the era. Yes. So you have these people, and I don't know how to put it politely, I'd consider them golf course and golf course architecture snobs Hmm. and they believe that there can't possibly have been a really good cool awesome golf course built after the 1930s Mm -hmm. and I'll tell you that's totally false there's been great golf designed in every era every decade every year in the United States Mm -hmm. there's been innovative golf designed and here we have Newport Country Club, which was built even before that golden age of golf course architecture, which started in the late 1910s and went into the early 1930s. And you have Pete Dye Golf Club that was built in 1993 or opened in 1993, although there's some debate with that because Pete and the owner were going back and forth so many times. No one's really quite certain what year the golf course officially opened. Tony Kowalski told me they're going to celebrate their 30th anniversary next year, but... But well, it,
0: it's why right when we started talking about these, I said that these two courses may have opened a hundred years yeah. apart. Maybe we're not a hundred percent sure.
1: So Newport country club proves that there was great golf courses on fascinating land built before the golden age. Mm-hmm. The Pete Dye golf club proves that there were great golf courses built on interesting land well after the golden age. And I think that's something that everybody needs to, to, to keep in mind that, uh, just because it wasn't designed by A.W. Tillinghast, although part of Newport Country Club was designed by A.W. Tillinghast, or if it wasn't designed by Donald Ross or Alistair McKenzie or Harry Colt, you know, whatever name of golden age architects you use, doesn't mean that it it wasn't or isn't a really awesome golf course. So that's the point that I'm trying to make. And golf course architecture styles – evolve over the course of the time. I mean, nobody would have thought of doing some of the things that Pete Dye did in the 1890s when Newport Country Club was involved and uh, developed. So to me, that's the cool thing about golf in the United States. We have so many different landscapes. We have so many different business goals of the people that own and operate golf facilities. We have so many different people that play the game. And there truly is something for everybody out there. And I, I think that we all need to Check our egos or elitist attitudes at the door and try to understand what people like about the golf courses that they play and not push our views of what a quote unquote great golf course is or when a great golf course was built on others and listen to the people that pay the bills of the golf in the United <laughs> States and try to understand what they like. And you know, yeah. some people maybe. Something built in the 1990s isn't for them, and that's cool. And maybe for others, you know, something that was built in the 1890s or 1920s isn't for them, and that's totally cool too. So it really shows to me, these two golf courses, the contrast of golf architecture and golf maintenance and intent and construction and design. And great golf is great golf, which is, I think, going to be in the subhead of our podcast no matter when it was built. And also, and I mentioned this to Jason Holland, like I said, I didn't get to meet Chris Cohn at Newport Country Club, but sense of place to me is one of the most important things when you're at a golf course. You just want to feel like you're somewhere uh, away from it. Right. It's
0: a place out of time and, yeah. and everything else. Yeah. And you
1: want to be somewhere where you feel like it somewhat meshes with its surroundings. And here you have Newport Country Club. Like I said, it feels like you're in the 1890s. You're by the Atlantic Ocean. You don't see a lot of homes. You see... Uh, turf grasses that are different colors and varieties growing all over the place you feel like you're at a seaside landscape you feel like you're back in time and that is just so cool and then at the Pete Dye Golf Club you talk about sense of place you know you, you see the old mine shafts you see remnants of the mining days you see coal on the golf course you see even the rail cars that have been left there you see the the, the logo that has the, the the miner's axe on it and you feel like you're you know, in West Virginia, the heart of the coal country in the United States, a place where really they built a lot of the buildings that we're in now with the energy from coal. And you just, each of them just match perfectly with their surroundings. You feel like you're um, somewhere that's special, somewhere that's been around for a long time, whether it's been a golf course or not. And to me, that that is so cool. I mean, yeah, shot angles and shot values and how the greens are rolling important. But to me, Uh, Golf is about going to a place and Newport Country Club and Pete Dye Golf Club personify special places that happen to have golf courses. Well, and can I add something for the the golf architecture, snobs, elites, whatever we want to call them here? Yeah. The architects and club owners and developers in the 1910s and 1920s and early 1930s essentially had the pick of the best possible land surrounding – Right, United States cities, right? The United States has not developed as much 100 years ago as it was now. So, of course, some of those golf courses are going to stand out compared to golf courses that were built in the 2000s where you had to take what you could get land-wise. Sometimes that's not considered in these conversations, is Mm -hmm. that just inherently because of when they were built, they had a better pick of land. Now, the Pete Dye Golf Club, really unique because it's a reclamation project. There wasn't mining there anymore. Imagine what that land would be if someone didn't come and build a golf course on it. It could be just a complete um, wasteland Mm -hmm. there in West Virginia, or maybe something else would have come up there, but they took a environmental negative, an old coal mine, and made it into something special, a golf course that is a huge economic impact to that area that is just a really fascinating landscape, and it brings attention to Bridgeport, West Virginia. So, uh, just when we have these debates, and I know people do, oh, you know, like, just no way a modern golf course could be as good as a golden age golf course. They're all good. There's mm-hmm. very few bad golf courses, and let's let's keep that mind in mind and be open to other people's views and thoughts on uh, why a golf course exists in the form that it does. There are 14,000
0: or so courses around the country. For some reason, people rank them. I don't know why. Any days on a golf course is – Better than a day somewhere else.
1: Yeah. And we're lucky that we have jobs where we get to go visit them. And we're even more lucky that we have awesome listeners, followers, readers, whatever you want to call them. We just don't call them readers, Matt. There, there's so many things to us. And we appreciate you listening to this podcast. Dan. They are a part of the golf course industry family and community. And we'll be back next month with uh, some of our thoughts from the places we're going to see in Myrtle Beach. And also, there'll be another Southeast trip that
0: we'll be able to talk about some very fun stuff coming up on the schedule. I'm excited to talk with you about it. I'm excited to go out and do those things. First, in case you missed it at the top of the episode, our November issue online shortly, October issue already online and both should be on their way to your actual physical mailbox if if they aren't already. If you don't get the fast and firm email newsletter that comes out on Tuesdays, you can subscribe directly on our homepage. You can follow Guy Cipriano on Twitter at GCI Magazine Guy. You can follow me at Matt Lowell, M-A-T-T-L-A-W-E-L-L. You can follow the magazine at GCI Magazine. We're on Facebook. We're on TikTok. We have the podcasts. There's a whole bunch of other stuff coming up. If you haven't turned in a story for Turf Heads Takeover and you want to, there's a couple weeks left for that. And if you haven't turned in a recipe, for turf ed's grilling. It's a couple weeks left for that, too. For guys Cipriano, I'm Matt Lowell. Thanks for being a part of the golf course industry community and the golf course industry family. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>